Hey, my name's Ken Russell. I'm a City of Miami Commissioner, and I'm here to help you better understand your local government. All right, so what we're doing is uh, having a, a good hello with folks who are advocates in the community for different things. We've been talking a lot about water quality as of late for good and bad. Uh, a lot's been going on. Um, and so we're doing an Instagram Live today. We're also recording on Zoom. And uh, I just really want to welcome Rachel. Thank you for everything you do for our Bay and our community and our city. And if you'd like to go ahead and introduce yourself, we'll get rolling. Sure, I'm, I'm Rachel Silverstein and I'm the Executive Director and Waterkeeper of local nonprofit Miami Waterkeeper. And our mission is to ensure swimmable, drinkable and fishable water for all. And those are actually rights given to you under the Clean Water Act. And whether or not you, you know that, you have a right to water that's safe for swimming, drinking, and fishing. And so um, we're here to protect those rights for our community, for our waterway, for our environment. Um, and we're thrilled to work with you in your office. And thank you for all the leadership you've shown in this area. I know you have a very close connection with the water. Uh, and it's been wonderful to work with you. So did I, did I hear you right? Is it Are you referred to as the Waterkeeper? Or are you a member of the Waterkeeper organization? So we are, it's both a job title and the name of the organization. Um, there's the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is the international organization of clean water advocacy groups. And then we're our own independent nonprofit within the, that network uh, that focuses entirely on Miami-Dade and Broward County water quality issues and environmental issues. And um, we are, Miami Waterkeeper is the name of our organization. Um, and my job title is the Miami Waterkeeper. So. <laughs> So it's a, it's a job title pretty unique to waterkeeper organizations uh, around the world. Ah, I dig it. All right. Well, you I, now I know what to call you. You are the waterkeeper, the Miami waterkeeper. Very cool. And and so, how big is this organization? It's nationwide. Is it worldwide? Yeah. So um, the Waterkeeper Alliance is international. So there, it started on the Hudson River in the 1960s with a group of commercial fishermen who. Um, realized that the, the fishing industry there that had been supporting their families for generations was disappearing because of uh, pollution that was happening on the Hudson. And they banded together to fight that pollution. And in the early 70s, they got the Clean Water Act, which gave citizens the right to actually bring lawsuits and to, to um, uh, do enforcement actions against polluters who are taking away your right to water that's safe for swimming, drinking, and fishing. And in the early 90s, that movement uh, grew across the country into other watersheds. The idea that an, uh, that a waterkeeper could be a spokesperson for a body of water and organize the community to exercise their rights to clean water locally. And we were founded in 2010. So this is actually our 10th anniversary. So we've been celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. And I started at Miami Waterkeeper in, um, in 2014. And um, I was the only staff member of the organization at the time. And now we have uh, seven staff hoping to grow more. We're actually hiring for um, three new positions right now too. So maybe some people watching have applied. <laughs> and some people might wanna help you fund that. And we would love funding to help new positions because one of the hardest things that we do is, have to, is that we have to say no to working on really important issues that are in our mission area because of capacity, because we're a small organization and there's, um, 
a seemingly endless amount of, of work to do in these issues from um, community outreach and education work that we do, which uh, we'll get into in a second, I'm sure. And then scientific research, which is the underpinning of all of our policy work and our programs. And then we do the legal and advocacy work when necessary as well. So if somebody wanted to help you, where do they go and how do they do it? So our website is miamiwaterkeeper.org. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter there. You can donate. You can become a member. Um, and definitely follow us on social media if you aren't already. Um, Miami Waterkeeper is uh, our Instagram page. We also have Facebook and Twitter. Um, and we post at least every day, usually multiple times a day. There's We have action alerts, ways you can get involved. We keep you informed about what's going on uh, in your local waterways. Um, how much of your job is um, helping and working together with municipalities and how much of your job is fighting and suing municipalities? <laughs> That's a very good question because we definitely do both. Um, and we certainly prefer to work closely with, um, you know, great actors and leaders like yourself uh, at the city of Miami. And we've been thrilled to work with you guys on things like preventing the use of uh, Roundup or glyphosate, a really toxic herbicide that harms the environment and human health um, on city property, which um, you spearheaded. The city of Miami currently has the strongest fertilizer ordinance in the state uh, to restrict fertilizer pollution that leads to algae blooms and the kind of fish kills that we saw. Um, and the city also took the lead on fighting a new rule from the state that would have allowed millions of gallons a year of, of over 83 different kinds of toxic chemicals from being discharged into our surface waters. And that would have um, increased the cancer rates in the state, particularly amongst people who eat seafood. So that was a huge issue and a victory that, um, that the city entered into that litigation along with uh, the Seminole tribe and then Miami-Dade County joined and uh, DEP withdrew the rule. So they're now currently um, in the process of reconsidering the science, hopefully to redo it to make it protective. But there are times when, you know, we've had to launch into litigation against governments. Uh, typically, it has been uh, the Army Corps of Engineers in recent years. Um, when they deepened and widened the Port of Miami shipping channel, it crosses the coral reef and it goes into Biscayne Bay. And they ended up killing without uh, permission over 560,000 corals just off of Miami Beach. So we entered into Endangered Species Act litigation about that. Um, and we're still fighting to get all of the corals restored uh, for Miami. And now they're going to Fort Lauderdale and they want to dredge Port Everglades up in Fort Lauderdale. And they didn't consider anything that happened in Miami in those environmental documents. So we sued again there um, uh, to get the environmental documents redone. Uh, it's been over three years and uh, they're actually getting re-released December 18th. So there will be public comment opportunities there if anybody wants to get involved, stand up for our reefs, make sure that they're protected uh, when those new environmental documents come out. We're going to need a lot of eyes, um, you know, looking at that. Well, again, it's, you support when you can, you fight when you have to. It's sort of a swim softly but carry a big spear kind of position. <laughs> Absolutely. All of that legislation you mentioned and brought at the city, you all have been there with us, helping advocate for it, helping us draft it. Um, it. You've been an invaluable resource for us for with regard to water quality. It's hard sometimes to know what to do in a comprehensive way. And, you know, I, I feel it's, it's whack-a-mole, like fertilizer comes up, let's write an ordinance, you know, glyphosate issue, let's write an ordinance. I, I noticed the county finished their Biscayne Bay, the report from their task force. This is the Biscayne Bay recovery plan. 
And I was talking with Irela Baguet with regard to their findings and what municipalities can be doing. And it's really the first time I had looked at it. And there's a lot of potential roles in here for municipalities to take on in conjunction with the county. And, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to studying that deeper and seeing what we can do from not only administrative perspective, but a policy perspective intergovernmentally with the county, because as you and I know, a lot of the biggest problems are, are, are going to be, you know, handled by both of us, the, the septic to sewer issue. That's a big one. Fixing the sewer issue. That's probably the biggest one. But if you just boil it down to the city of Miami's issue within that, it's much more manageable. I mean, we can, we can look at the city of Miami septic and specifically city of Miami septic that's susceptible to sea level rise. That's a very attainable goal. We've identified, I think, around 170 homes that are still on septic that are actually susceptible to sea level rise at this moment. So that's not an unreachable number. That's something we can definitely write policy about or try to find funding for. And we just recently launched a septic campaign on our website that you can check out too. And it has educational information for folks about septic, the septic issue, how it intersects with sea level rise. There's a petition that you can sign there. And then there's also information for elected officials and and your staff about funding mechanisms for septic to sewer conversions, scientific memos, and policy goals. So as you and I both know, there's a lot of big infrastructure issues facing Miami because of sea level rise and because of the age of a lot of our infrastructure, particularly our wastewater infrastructure. And there's a lot of overlapping layers of, of government jurisdiction in that. Um, so it's going to take municipal, county, state, and federal coordination to get all of this stuff funded because we are looking at billions of dollars of need um, to be able to continue living here. We've had an amazing master's student, Aaron Stauber, who's been working on this for uh, much of the last year, and he actually just presented his his thesis work this morning. So congratulations to Aaron. Uh, but he did an exceptional job, and he found documents, um, you know, going back to the 40s about the septic issues contaminating Biscayne Bay and deals that the county had made in the 70s to get rid of all the septic tanks that that never came to fruition. So, um, you know, we're hoping with the new administration in the county, there's there'll be a renewed commitment to eliminating the septic tanks in the urban parts of Miami-Dade County. So um, changing subjects, I saw a comment roll through um, in the Instagram feed. Someone was asking about uh, the back base study. And those are your good friends, again, the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, yes. And first of all, I'm just ecstatic as a nerd that people watching Instagram know about the back base study. So that's a mission accomplished in itself that people have been educated that it exists. Um, so could you, for those who don't know, could you bring people up to speed on what the back base study is? And I'd love to hear what uh, Waterkeeper's uh, or the Waterkeeper's position is on the back base study. If you are more interested in this, we also have a page on our website about the back base study with our comment letters that we submitted about the project if you want to really get into the weeds. But um, this is basically funding from Congress for the Army Corps of Engineers to come to Miami to study what can be done to protect property from storm surge. Of course, we have flooding during storms, but we also have daily chronic flooding from uh, sea level rise that's getting worse and worse. Um, And the funding is actually not to look at sea level rise, but only to look at storms. Um, But it's our position that at a minimum, it shouldn't make sea level rise based flooding worse, um, which the plan that we ended up getting out of the Army Corps frankly does. Um, The Army Corps came back with a plan for $4.6 billion 
um, one of the major features is to build a, um, a 20 foot high wall down the Brickle waterfront in order to protect it from storm surge, um, which seems like a completely untenable proposition for the people who live in Brickle and the value of our waterfront and the environment. Um, and then there's also some walls going down the middle of neighborhoods that in, in our opinion, you know, um, are going to have negative impacts on um, those communities that are going to be on the wrong side of the wall. Um, and then another big piece of the plan is to elevate uh, multi-million dollar homes in Golden Beach, for example. Um, so all in all, it, 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 um, there's equity issues with the plan. There's environmental issues with the plan. It's not going to be particularly effective in dealing with storm surge. Uh, or sea level rise and will actually, we think, make sea level rise worse because the walls will actually break the existing um, stormwater system and it won't drain properly anymore. And the county would have to then pay to fix the stormwater system, which we already have problems with. Um, and one of the major, two, there are two major things missing, or th actually three major things missing from the plan. Um, one is the use of green infrastructure, which almost every single public comment that weighed in on that project asked for green infrastructure to be included in the plan. And that's using things like mangroves or living shorelines um, or reefs, frankly, to, um, to deal with storm surge instead of building big walls. And studies, study after study has shown that that can be economical and effective as well as good for the environment. So we really wanna see something like that included in the plan. Um, and then the Army Corps actually brings up the, the risks associated with septic tanks during storms um, and the fact that they flood and then you end up with, you know, basically raw sewage on the ground. And we thought that this was a great opportunity to fund septic to sewer conversion, given the risk of septic tanks during storms and the particular areas of the county that the Army Corps was, was honing in on. But that unfortunately wasn't included in the plan either. But I think um, there could be a push um, to have that included. And so that's what we recommended in our letter. But, you know, I think if we just say no to the plan that they propose, that we'll lose that federal funding that we really, really need to make our community more resilient. So we need to be proactively proposing what we do want as a community um, from a plan like this. And, and for us, that's green infrastructure, that's fixing septic to sewer conversion, um, doing reef restoration, um, and finding solutions that are equitable, that aren't, you know, that are enhancing communities, not destroying them and, and looking at places like parks and medians and things like that, that could be made into resilient features um, without, you know, constructing concrete walls and, and such. Um, so that was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad to hear your position, honestly. Your, your position is, is very similar to mine, and, and I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because it's, it's very easy, I think, especially for advocacy groups to, you know, just light the torches and raise the pitchforks and, and say no, um, because a plan doesn't look right. But to actually do the homework and hard work and build the relationships to actually change the plan um, to, to hopefully be a good one is it's, it's not as easy, but I think it's really the right way to go. I was familiar with the back base study for the last three years, really, when I was looking for funding for uh, the Miami Baywalk. And we were looking at the Baywalk as our front line to storm surge and sea level rise. And I was looking for help from the federal government. And that's when we really learned that this study was going on. And they said, you're going to have to wait three years while the study's being conducted. And I'm like, I can't wait three years. And it's like, you know, government moves at this glacial pace. 
but it's weird when you're in it, it feels like I just blinked and that was yesterday. <laughs> I'm sure. And, and now they've presented the plan to us. And, um, and, and of course it wasn't the plan that we had hoped for, uh, but the money is there. And so they came to city commission twice to speak with us. And we, I asked a lot of questions that, that they may or may not have been ready for, but I think all the community advocacy and the education to the residents and the comment period, they have taken it seriously. And our chief resilience officer is in close contact with them regularly. It's my understanding. And I hear that they are revamping the plan to invest a lot more in, in order to accommodate a lot of these comments and goals. Apparently it was an incredibly efficient plan uh, to start with. The cost to benefit ratio was so efficient that there's room for them to spend more and still see the maximum benefit they want without just going the easy route of pouring a giant concrete wall. Right. And their goal is how much property can we protect for the least amount of money? And that's right. that's their formula. And of course, that leads to equity issues in that you're, you end up investing in areas that have the highest property values like Golden Beach. Um, and so elevating one multi-million dollar home in Golden Beach might get you more points in your cost benefit analysis, but it's not actually helping the most members of the community or um, the environment in, in, with, in the greatest um, way. So I, on a national level, I think looking at how they're, they're doing those formulas and, cre- and what kind of costs and what kind of benefits are being included is going to be really critical to, to making change on the national level. But of course, Alan Dodd, uh, the chief resiliency officer, if anybody knows how to, um, how to navigate the core yeah, system and speak core speak, it should be him. I'm, I'm glad we have him. He can save the project. Protecting property, though, if I, yes. if I remember correctly, it's about a $4 billion investment for about a $40 billion um, protection of assets. So like a 10 to one uh, ratio. And a lot of those assets that they were looking at are way upriver, even into the Alapata area. They were talking about that if the big hurricane comes, we've had so many near misses that still caused a lot of damage in Miami. But if the big one comes and basically we have a tsunami going up the Miami River, that that's where such damage happens inland that that justified their their greater spend out you know to keep the water out it includes massive floodgates or sector gate it's called uh on on the miami river and that'll be interesting to see the final renderings of what that looks like yeah it's interesting because there are already flood control structures on the river that are kept open during storms so it's interesting to like put another one in to keep it closed during a storm when you aren't closing the other ones but i guess those ones aren't like flood control um gates they're like salinity structures so you know, one of the questions we had was why not just revamp those to do what you need them to do instead of making new ones. We detailed all of these ideas and plans on our website. Um, so if you go to our website and then search for back bay study, you'll find um, all the information you could ever want in our position on that if for anybody who's watching. Um, but I wanted to bring up to another and really important item that we've been working on together, and that is limiting sediment runoff. Um, I don't know if you want to. Sure. That one just took some real puzzle solving, you know, because we have ordinances in place, we have penalties that are limited by state. And what this was about was construction sites that don't contain their runoff. And when their sediment goes to a storm drain, it comes out in the bay. Uh, And we were seeing so many big plumes, these silt plumes and sediment plumes um, after heavy rains. How do we stop that? Well, we were hitting them with uh, um, notices of violation and fines 
and you know, 200, 500 bucks, you know, these multi, multi million dollar construction projects, they couldn't care less about a fine like that. It's just a cost. What we needed was something that was effective enough to get every layer of that project to care about it. And my idea was to tackle their, their time on job site because more than just the daily you know, costs involved, for them to lose time on a job site is crucial to the landowner, the developer, the construction company, and right down to the employee, the guy who's cleaning out the cement truck at the end of the day. Um, if there's a stop work order put on their property, he's not coming to work the next day. And so I wanted everyone on the site to care about it, but I wanted to do it in a way that wasn't some long-term punitive. I was looking for a solution that tackled the problem immediately and got you know response from the construction company. And so basically it was an ordinance that, that we drafted to amend the code and allow our departments to work together and shut down a construction site when they are identified as the environmental criminal, basically, of dumping into the bay. And it has worked surprisingly very well. Um, and it's actually been really well received by the construction industry. You wouldn't think, but they actually are also very much in support of having a healthy bay and holding bad actors accountable. And so I'm very happy that it helped get it passed and it helped us put it into action. Absolutely. And I, we have a program called the Thousand Eyes on the Water, which is another great way for people to get involved who are watching. Um, you can take a, we've made it virtual now, um, and you can take a one hour training on our website. If you go to miamiwaterkeeper.org and then under programs, a thousand eyes on the water, um, you can join our thousand eyes on the water team. And that will teach you to observe, document and report pollution that you might see going about your daily life. Um, and we get so many reports of these sediment plumes um, being spotted in the water. And I think that's what raised this issue of, the, of how, do we, how do we stop this? And, you know, all this stuff is coming down the storm drain and ending up in, in the river and the waterway. And um, we recently had our first location that we've had repeated reports of sediment plumes from actually, you know, have the, the stop work order issued. So it's been an interesting synergy where, you know, the community is watching the water and we need everybody's eyes on the water because, you know, we're a small team. We can't be everywhere at once. And that's led to real change for the environment. So I think a, a really nice tie in from the community seeing the policy action from your office. Yes, I see someone just put the website address in the comments for mindyourwaterkeeper.org slash 1000 eyes. And if you'd also like to report an incident like that to the city directly, you can send an email to our very unfortunate address, discharge at miamigov.com. What happens is when either we get a report from Thousand Eyes or it comes in through our email, the department will send out inspectors first to the plume site itself. And it happens within one hour. They go to the plume site, identify, then they go back up the, um, the pipe, up the storm drain from the street level and open up the manhole covers and they keep tracking the plume back. They see the sediment going through, and that way they can um, basically rule out or identify exactly which site is causing that plume. One of the largest plumes we had in the river, uh, I thought I knew which site it was. It turned out it was four sites, all from different parts of Brickell feeding into this one uh, outfall, and that's why the plume was so strong. Um, and then within an hour after that, the stop work order can be issued and they can be sent home. So it, it's been very effective. I've been trying to share this legislation with other cities because it's not a heavy lift. It's not a big change. It takes a little work from the administration to set up the process through the building department and the public works department. But 
it really works. I think one of the reports came through while I was out on a fireboat and we didn't recognize it because it wasn't the traditional plume. It was, it was like a black sludge coming straight up from the bottom. And a resident in a tower had seen it in the water, took a picture and sent it through you guys and sent it through Instagram, sent it through our email. And while we were out on the boat, that was coming up. So we turned the boat and we headed that direction. By the time we had gotten there, Public Works Department had already identified the pipe that was running under water was a 16 inch sludge pipe from the county. And so the county was able to be notified immediately. And by the time the boat got to the site, they had already shut off that valve. So the system is working. (laughs) That's great. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention too, is that that we've worked together to test the water. And so the city has actually funded Miami Waterkeeper to test sites around Biscayne Bay where people are recreating every week. We go in, we go out and we look for bacteria levels to make sure we're not having things like sewage fills or sludge lines leak. Um, and that could potentially be making people sick when they go in the water. And we take the bacteria um, data from um, now 11 sites around Biscayne Bay, and we post it all on a free app called Swim Guide. So you can go to Swim Guide, you can either see red or green and see if it's safe to go in the water in that place, or if the bacteria, I shouldn't say safe, because we don't know what else is in the water besides bacteria, but at least the bacteria levels are, are low enough that we would um, we would um, have no swim advisory in that location. Um, and you can um, also find out interesting information about your local beaches on the app too. Um, but that's been another great partnership with the city that we've been able to expand sampling. We also put Department of Health's water quality data on there and Surfrider Miami's water quality data. Um, and we're now going to be sampling 10 sites in Fort Lauderdale, too, on the same model that started with the city of Miami. So it's, it's spreading, which is great. We're going to wrap it up. I really appreciate everything you do. We could talk forever and ever. And so we'll have to pick this up again. I look forward to it. I really appreciate everything you do. Everybody remember to go check out Miami Waterkeeper and and thank our actual the waterkeeper, Rachel Silverstein. (laughs) Thank you, Commissioner. Thanks. Thanks for everything you do. And thanks for having me. Everybody take care. Be safe.